Good morning, church. Good to see you all, at least half your faces, and thank you for being here in the sanctuary, and thank you for joining us at home or wherever you are. I do need to dispel a myth. Some people have been telling me, it's good, I saw you Sunday, and I say, they're, t- they're joining us from home, and I say, well, I saw you too, and it unnerves people. I, I don't really see you there. You can relax. I do want to say a public thank you. I think I say it on behalf of all of us to our choir. They have nobly led us in this uh, time of pandemic, and they, they fill up this room with excellence and with love. And they come sacrificially every week, too, because uh, each one of us gets the, the brain plunge test uh, who are leading up here. And I really appreciate your ministry to us. Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19? You can find a Bible there in the pew, or you have the text printed for you in your bulletin. And if you're new with us uh, online or in person, we study uh, books of the Bible and chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been in Exodus for a while now. We studied half chapter 19 last week. We'll study the rest of it today. I'll read verse 9 and then pick up later in verse 16. And occasionally we come on a text that allows us to go more deeply into a theological topic. And on this occasion, we have that that opportunity. Uh, But we'll always see the application of it to our our lives. And the the topic that we will examine in a deeper way today is the, the topic of canonicity. That's not the boom, boom kind of canon. That's the canon meaning a rule or a measure. How did the Bible, the books of the Bible make it into the Bible? How, what, what kind of test was there? What kind of, what kind of measuring device determined which books would make it into the Bible? And you say, what could be more irrelevant to us in the middle of these crises? Aren't you aware, preacher, of what's happening all around us? There's financial insecurity. There's injustice. There's racism. There's, there is, uh, there's the sickness. There are people in, are anxious and despairing. Yes, I am aware of those things. I spend almost every day on the phone comforting people with those very crises and experience them myself. But I have noticed in the last couple of weeks that almost every conversation, no matter the topic, ultimately comes back to this topic. Can the Bible be trusted? Can it be trusted as reliable? Or is it full of error? Is it, is it just a, a human opinion? Or if, even if we believe that the Bible is reliable, do we believe it's sufficient? It's sufficient in its promises, in its instructions, in its directives to carry us through, to give us guidance in, a, in an uncertain and chaotic and confusing time like this. This text answers those questions. Bertrand Russell was an infamous atheist philosopher. He was very bitter about his friend C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien becoming Christians, and he spent his life trying to debunk Christianity. But near the end of his life, someone asked him what he was hanging on to, and he said, I have nothing but grim and unrelenting despair to hang on to. We have more than that infinitely more than that. 
We have not just the Word of God to hang on to, but we have the Bible as the Word of God to stand on, to walk with as we walk through these crises. I want you with expectant hearts then to pay attention to God's Word as we begin reading in verse 9 and then later 16 to the rest of the chapter. Exodus 19, verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, let's set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. Don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you tell us that the life that is built on the solid rock of your word will last. A life that is built on anything else will perish as on a foundation of sand. Lord, we need a strong foundation. We need a place to stand. We need you to lift our eyes above the wind and the waves and put them squarely on Jesus. And we know that every book of the Bible reveals Jesus. So would you reveal him afresh to our eyes today and know that whatever this Bible says about Jesus is true and trustworthy. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. Dr. Rosalind Picard is a professor at MIT. She's a founder and director of the Affective Research Group in the Medical Studies Department or Discipline of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And recently she wrote uh, her testimony. She shared how she came to Christ in college. She's obviously a very bright person to get an appointment at MIT, and she was very bright in college, of course, and she was so bright, she thought that she did not need 
religion, any sacred book. She especially didn't need Christianity. But then she realized that she wanted to be a well-educated person, well-rounded person, so she should read the Bible. She had never read the Bible. You can't be a well-educated person and not read the Bible. So she, she grimaced and opened the Bible and prepared herself, she said, for reading about a bunch of phony miracles and gobbledygook. But she opened first to the book of Proverbs, and she couldn't believe it. It wasn't a bunch of phony miracles, but rather she said she had to stop and think. When she read, she had to think. She had to stop and ponder what she was reading. So she read more and more. She read through the Bible uh, once and then read through the Bible twice. Since somebody, one of her fellow college students invited her to go to church. She went to church. She heard the pastor say something she thought was odd but intriguing. The pastor asked, have you ever taken Christ to be the Lord of your life? Is He the Lord of your life? She wanted to say, what an odd question. She said, of course, He's not the Lord of my life. Nobody is the, is the, is the Lord of my life. I'm the captain of my life, but it's not working out so well with me as the captain of my life. I think I'll try this. And so she said, she prayed. <clears throat> uh, she said, Jesus Christ, I ask you to be Lord of my life. And when I did, she said, my world changed dramatically as if a flat black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. But I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask even tougher questions about how the world works. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. And now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today, I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for, filled with desire to keep learning and exploring. She discovered and is continuing to discover, even in the context of high academia, that the Bible is the trustworthy Word of God. And God goes to great lengths in our text to convince us of the same. Each person of the Godhead makes a contribution to confirming that the Bible is the Word of God, the only sufficient rule of faith and practice, a foundation upon which we might build our life, a sure and certain guide in the darkest of times. I want you to see it in this text. The first point is that, that we may know that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is sufficient upon which to base our life because it is narrated by the Holy Spirit. It is narrated by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can, if you're a, a kind of, if you're a long-term Christian and you're used to reading the Bible, you can almost pass by these, these mentions of God saying something. But over and again in our chapter, the Lord said, the Lord said, verse 3, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, 10, 19, 21, 24, the Lord said, and it's true throughout the Bible. Over and again, the Bible says of itself, this is what the Lord said, Samuel says in 2 Samuel 
chapter 23, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. Now, not only does the Old Testament say that, the New Testament says that. The New Testament explains it even more clearly. Two passages of Scripture I want you to write down in your notes. You don't need to, to turn there, but two passages of Scripture you need to have in your notes. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. But... This is how God wrote it. He said, this is, how, this is how the apostle Peter says, a prophecy did not come about by the will of men, but men wrote, they spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not their own interpretation, not their own will, but rather they were responsive to God's Spirit carrying them along so that utilizing their unique personalities and education and, and grammar and style and so forth, they produced what God wanted written. It's an interesting word there, translated carried along. It's the same word used to describe that wind that blew the ship along that, 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 that Paul was on that, that ran aground. And so it's, it's God who is, who is moving them along, blowing wind into their sails to produce what he wants written for us. Now, uh, Paul uses that kind, of, that kind of breath imagery as well in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is, the Greek word is theopneustos, God, theo, and pneustos, like pneumonia. It is breathed out by God. The Word of God that we have in the Bible has been breathed out through the agency of the human writers, prophets, and apostles, but such that the result is exactly what he wanted written for us. Now, you've probably encountered people like this. Maybe you're one of them. I've had conversations with people who say, you know, <clears throat> I like the Bible, okay. I find some inspiration in it. I think it's a good book. But I don't believe you need to get carried away and base your whole life on it. It's not something that tells you what to do. It's not... Um, it's, it's, it's not directive for your life, and it's certainly not inerrant and infallible. It's certainly not an authority. But I gently but firmly have to, to say with, with such friends, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't have it both ways. Because the Bible, the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. The Bible claims to be the very Word of God. So you can't say that it's a good book and yet it has all these spurious claims. So you've got to deal with it the way it presents itself. It says it is the Word of God. So then you're left only with three options. You're, you, 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 can, you can reject it. You can say it is not the Word of God, so there's nothing about it that's good. Or you can say it is the Word of God, but I'm going to rebel against it. Or you can admit that it is the Heavenly Father's very loving and lovely gift to you to give you His Word, to come down from heaven. 
the God of all the universe who has made everything, whom, whom no one can see or can see, who is sovereign over all the nations and there but a drop in the bucket before him, that God has stooped down so very low so as to speak to us, as John Calvin says, in baby talk that we can understand not just to tell us what to do, but so as to assure us and to give us promises and to give us comfort in the middle of disasters like this. This is what God has done lovingly for us. The best thing to do is to accept it. Dr. Car- uh, Dr. Picard went on to say that, that uh, I felt, she said, when she, was, when she was reading the Bible for the first time and the second time, she said, I felt this strange sense of being spoken to. Part of me was increasingly eager to spend time with the God of the Bible. But an irritated voice inside me insisted I would be a lot happier once I moved on from this thing. Well, she found that that was a lie that the more she submitted her life to the Lord Jesus Christ and heard him speaking to her in his word, the more beautiful, the more fulfilling life became. The first thing you should know about the Bible as the word of God is that it has been narrated to you lovingly by the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want you to see in our text is that it is confirmed by God himself. It is objectively confirmed by God himself. This this is really incredible what Moses records for us as having happened in Israel. Says God says, verse 9, I am coming down to you. Ancient Near Eastern gods didn't come down to anybody. I am coming down, at least to do them good. I am coming down to you. And I'm coming down to speak to you. But I'm going to prove that I have that I've come among you because God is a spirit. No one can see him. And so, so he has to give evidence that he came. And so here's, here's how you're going to know I came. There'll be a cloud. There'll be smoke. There'll be a trumpet blast. You'll feel the earth tremble. There will be no doubt but that I have come into your midst. One ancient Near Eastern scholar said, there is no other influential religious document other than the scriptures that can attest to this kind of corporate verification. Corporate verification. It's not that this, it's not that Moses goes off in the woods and receives some golden tablets and nobody saw what happened. It's not that he goes off on a mountain somewhere and nobody was with him. But Moses says, uh, here's what God says is going to happen. I'm going to go up there on the mountain and God's going to shake the earth and he's going to create some smoke and a trumpet blast and you're going to hear him speaking to me. And, and there, there are going to be a lot of witnesses. Scholars disagree over how many people were actually in the wilderness. Was it 25,000 or was it 2 million? It doesn't matter. Even if it were only 25,000, that's a lot of people. And they're all seeing the same thing. And it made such an impression that the children remembered it to the next generation because Moses keeps appealing to it in Deuteronomy. You saw him. You heard him. You felt it. This is totally unique that the, that the, that the Bible that we have at least the, 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 initially, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Moses has been confirmed before all these thousands of people that he is the spokesperson for God. There was no doubting it. 
And, and then God, God didn't reveal everything to him all at once when he went up on the mountain this time. He would continue to reveal his will to him that Moses would write down until he had written all the five books of the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But this is how, they people, how the people knew. He didn't just come out and say, hey, God gave me another word. It's rather that God confirmed to all the people that he was giving word to Moses to be shared with them by coming to the tent. It's called the, the tent of meeting. You know, they're traveling through the wilderness, and the, the tent of meeting was that place that only Moses could go into. And Moses went in there, and when he would go in, the, the cloud would come, and they would know, ooh, that cloud reminds us of Mount Sinai. So God is speaking to Moses in there. His face would radiate when he came out, and they would know whatever he has to say to us, that has been given by God. So he initially appears on Mount Sinai. He confirms that Moses is his, his divinely inspired prophet, and he continues to do that through the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is a kind of mobile Mount Sinai. You say, well, that's great. That's great for Moses and the first five books of the Bible. Well, how do we know about the rest of the books of the Bible? Well, see, God, God, by doing that with Moses, set up a standard by which all the other prophets and apostles would be judged as to whether or not they were writing and speaking Scripture. God says to Moses in verse 9, He said, I'm going to speak to you so that they will know forever that I have spoken to you. Well, Moses didn't live forever. So they're, they're, they had to set down these standards to say, okay, you know that I've been speaking the Word of God to you. How will you know in the future that a prophet is speaking the Word of God? In chapters, in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, God sets down those standards through Moses. And, and there are about five of them, but I'll just summarize them in two, in two ways. So they said, now look, in the future, when a prophet comes forward and says, I'm a prophet of God, you need to ask, you need to apply basically two tests. One is, is what he is saying in keeping with what has already been revealed through Moses? Or is he contradicting it? Does he come along and say, I'm a prophet of God, but I'm telling you, you can obey other gods. Or I'm, I'm a prophet of God, but I'm telling you, there's an 11th commandment and uh, you can keep you, it contradicts the other, the other ten. Is that if anything contradicts what I've already revealed through Moses, that is not a true prophet, even if he works miracles. He's not a true prophet unless it's in keeping with what I've already revealed. And the second test is I will not only, I not only give them this word and, and it'll be in keeping with what has already been revealed, but I'm going to give them a miracle to show you that they're from me. And the specific miracle is that they're going to make a prophecy. They're going to say, this is going to happen, and then it will, it will be fulfilled in their lifetime. And if they say something is going to happen by a certain time and it doesn't, then you can stone them. But if, they, if, if they've spoken that which is in continuity and they have made a short-term prophecy and it's fulfilled, then you take that scroll, you roll it up, and you put it in the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Word of God. So Isaiah comes along, and the, and the people have a right to say, I'm not sure you're, I'm a prophet of God. Well, let's see what you got. 
Tell us what you're speaking. And they hear it's not, nothing's contradictory to what already been revealed. What about prophecy? Well, here's a problem. You're, you're cuddling up with, with the king of Syria. I'm telling you, things are going to go bad for you. And sure enough, they did. And then they, they turn around uh, some years later and they say, we better trust in Assyria because they're going to destroy us. And he says, no, if you, if you trust in me, you will be victorious even against the mightiest nation on the earth. And sure enough, they were. And all kinds of other short-term prophecies like that, they came about and they said, Isaiah's a prophet. Roll up the scroll, put it in the ark. Jeremiah comes along later. He says, you don't listen to God, he's going to send you in exile. And uh, ah, no, that's not going to happen. We've got, we've got a contingency plan. Well, sure enough, they went into exile. Jeremiah's a prophet of God. Roll up the scroll, put it in the ark of the covenant. Now, God didn't have any obligation to do that. God could have just said, you better listen to my word and my word's enough. But God has said, no, I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever you hear from me, it may be expanded, but it's never going to be contradictory. And I'm going to stoop down to you. I know that you're frail people. I know you have frail and finite faith. So I'm going to give you a tangible sign. And a credible number of the community will see this miraculous fulfillment of prophecy and you'll know this is my word what about the new testament it continues on in the new testament all the apostles who write in the new testament were obligated to write in continuity with what had already been revealed to moses jesus himself said on the road to emmaus he's starting with moses and the prophets he he preached to them all that the Scripture said about himself. Peter stands up at Pentecost and said, this is what Moses said would happen. Paul says, quotes Moses and said, this is authoritative. This is what he, how he describes righteousness in Romans 3, Romans 10, and throughout his book, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The writer of Hebrews says, Moses was a faithful witness. Here is what he said. Here is what has come true. The writer of Revelation John says about the end of time when we're all gathered before the throne. Chapter 15, we will all sing the song of Moses, which is worthy as the Lamb. No, the whole Bible is about the same thing. The whole Bible is about the revelation of Christ that started with Moses. He was the gold standard for how we would know what God's Word was. But is it confirmed by miracles in the New Testament? Do we really have to answer that question? These apostles were workers of miracles, and the greatest of them, the greatest of the miracles that they were participating in, that they they witnessed was the resurrection of Christ. They had to have that stamp on them. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? This Bible that you hold in your hand, every book has been graciously and mercifully confirmed to you as that which upon you can build your whole life. You can know when God says, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, I will be with you. The the waves will not sweep over you, I will be with you. And he says, I'll heal all your diseases. I'll deliver you safely into the promised land. When he says, obey me no matter what, as so that life will go well with you. All of those directives, all of those promises 
are utterly confirmed as reliable, but they've narrated by the Holy Spirit Himself and confirmed by God the Father. These tests of the Bible, and there are others I could give if you enroll at Memphis City Seminary, we'll go through all of them. And uh, our professors, like Professor Mary Wilson, can make these arguments from the Old Testament, and Professor Dan Burns could make these arguments from the New Testament. And I've said on occasion here, and I've said it throughout my ministry, when you, if, especially to, to college students, this is when I teach our, our high school seniors before they go off to college. I teach them, I give them an arsenal of arguments by which they may defend the Bible because when temptation comes and when the attacks come from their peers or from their professors, they need to know that the Bible is a trustworthy source. And I, I, so I say on occasion to them and to all the congregation, if someone attacks your faith and attacks your Bible, then contact your pastors. We can we can help you defend your faith. You say, oh, I don't want to bother you. are too busy. Listen, this is why we went to seminary. We went to seminary to answer these kinds of questions, not to deal with a lot of the other things we do sometimes deal with. But we love to answer these kinds of questions. We love to help you give an answer for the hope that is within you. Soon after I moved here, a young man who grew up in the church I previously pastored and never shown any interest in Christianity. He came to church, but he never in the youth group, never went to Sunday school, told his parents, told all of us very, very politely, but he said he had no interest in Christianity. He didn't want to follow Christ. He went away to college. He's a very smart young man. He went to, away to a, a highly challenging academic institution. And, and uh, there, for whatever reason, he decided to explore the Christian faith. He, he, he even went to a Bible study. And he wrote me and he said, Pastor Robertson, you said one time from the pulpit that if, if somebody ever attacked the Bible, attacked the faith, just reach out to you and you can help us to, to defend our faith. Well, I'm doing that because not only is it being attacked in the classroom, but I went to this so-called Bible study and my, the, the, the people in the Bible study said, you can't trust everything in the Bible. You have to take some of it with a grain of salt. It's got errors in it and so forth. He said, I, I, I want to explore that question. Well, I was in the transition here. It took me a week or two to respond to him. And, and but when I finally got back to him, he said, oh, thank you for, for responding, but I just did a little reading on my own. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. There are answers out there that are easily accessible that prove that the Bible is trustworthy. And I want you to know, I've, I've never been interested in Jesus before, but I'm building, I've built my life on Jesus now and on His Word it's confirmed. It is narrated by the Holy Spirit. It's confirmed by God the Father. But God gives you even more than that. He says it is sealed by the very blood of Christ. You say, now where does that come in this text? Well, it's, it's everywhere in the book of Exodus and the five books too because there's blood everywhere. It's implied in verses 10 and 14 and 22 where God tells Moses and Aaron and, the, and the, the priests to consecrate themselves. Well, it doesn't mention sacrifices here, but we know already what consecration means. When, you're gonna, when you consecrate the firstborn son, you've got to slay a lamb. When the people of God were to be consecrated or set apart from the Egyptians who had rejected God, they were to kill an unblemished lamb. 
spread the blood on the doorposts of their houses. The, the sacrifices of the ceremonial law are sacrificial sacrifice. They're, I mean, uh, they're the sacrifices of blood. All pointing to Christ. And just in case there's, you, you still doubt that there's a connection between blood sacrifice and the, of, of Christ and the, and the confirmation of the Bible as the Word of God, then just think about this. In Revelation 5, in Revelation 5, John looks up and he sees a vision of, of a scroll. And in that scroll, in that scroll is, is contained everything that John needs for hope in the present, the present domination of the Roman Empire, and assurance for the future hope of the gospel. But he can't get in there. He can't see it. He can't read it because the, 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 only, person, there's a, the, the only person who is worthy to unroll that scroll, to, to break that seal, is someone God considers approved, perfect. And John weeps. Well, there, we, there are the promises. There are the directives. There's the hope that we need for living in this present time and in the future. But nobody can get to it because there's no one found worthy to do it. And then steps forward the Lamb of God. And the choir responds. All the saints gathered there respond and they sing. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And worthy is that lamb to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign forever. Does that sound familiar? In last week's passage, remember, God said, you will be my treasured people. You will be a kingdom of priests. How in the world is God, a holy God, going to make us a kingdom of priests, his treasured possession? How are we sinful people going to be his, his kingdom of priests? By the sacrifice of that last lamb. That word that was in the beginning with God and has become flesh and has paid the penalty for our sins. That word that has become flesh, not just to confirm to us God's word, but conform us to God's word. God shed his own blood for his precious flock to confirm to us the Bible is God's Word. Maybe you remember that tragedy that occurred in 2005 in a Metrolink train in Los Angeles by, by some kind of error, operator error or technical difficulty, uh, broke through a barrier and crashed and, and killed 11 people and uh, wounded uh, many more. Emergency rescue teams came on the scene and worked for hours. 
rescued all the ones they could who were still alive and, and then pulled out the rest of the bodies. And then when they thought their, their, their work was finished, uh, somebody said, no, I hear, I hear, I hear a voice down beneath uh, the train in the rubble of the Captain, Captain Rosario, the head of the, the rescue team said, uh, there's no way anybody could have survived under there. No, they insisted he's, somebody is in there. So he dug down. And there to his amazement was, was someone, and that someone named John was still breathing. He was unconscious, but he was, he was breathing. He had, he had been saved from crushing by a kind of pocket there, but he had been pinned by the rubble. And so, Captain Rosario starts tearing away the jaws of life, the, the, the wreckage to get to, to this man who did live, but he didn't think he was going to live. That is, John didn't think he was going to live. He thought he was going to die. He thought he would surely run out of air before someone could rescue him. And so he wrote two notes before he died. One said, I, and then the symbol of a heart, my kids. I love my kids. And then I, a heart, Leslie, his wife. He wrote those messages with his own blood. I love my kids. I love Leslie. There would never be any doubt that he loved them. He wrote it with his own blood. And let there be no doubt that your God loves you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have all conspired in love to write down God's word for you, his promises, his directives. Unless you doubt that it's written in love, he demonstrated his love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, shed his blood to seal that word to your heart and mine. Do not let the voices of this world, do not let the voices of this world through the media, through social media, through what you read, through what you're listening to, the echo chambers you live in. Do not let those voices determine for you what is reality and shape your heart. By all means, be aware of the times, but may the Word of God shape your mind. Only then will you have hope. Only then will you have a loving demeanor. Only then will you speak lovingly. Only then will you display a loving gospel that will be contagious for others. God loves you. He's spoken to you. Believe it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, take your word and seal it to our hearts and minds that we might believe it and rest our lives on it. We also pray, our Father, that if there is anyone within the sound of my voice who has yet 
to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that this would be the day of their salvation and the day of having their lives turned from black and white into a full and vibrant picture of a world that is owned by their good, good Father. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.